Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Among the ecological crises facing us in the 21st century, none may be more pressing than those involving water. In fact, the World Wildlife Federation estimates that by 2025, two-thirds of the world's population may face water shortages, and those who depend on freshwater ecosystems for their livelihoods are increasingly alarmed about catastrophic damage being done to these fragile resources. Those who've lived near and depend on the ecosystems of lakes, rivers, and streams for generations have a special appreciation for the relationship between water and life. This is especially true of indigenous people whose knowledge may be instrumental in managing the crises we face. Our guest today is Ryan Emanuel, a professor in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at North Carolina State University, where he is also an alumni distinguished graduate professor and university faculty scholar. This year, as a fellow at the center, Ryan has been working on a project that merges scholarship in environmental science, public policy, and history with indigenous knowledges to write a book called Water in the Native World, Environmental Science and Indigenous Knowledge Along the Lumbee River. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Matthew. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Ryan, you're trained as a hydrologist, and you focused your career on understanding the role that plants play in the water cycle in particular. In fact, you've published widely on wetlands in North Carolina and elsewhere. At the National Humanities Center, however, you are writing a history. What drew you as a scientist to write history? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting connection, and it's been brewing for quite some time. You know, as a hydrologist, I spend a lot of time in these wetlands and in other field sites where you know, we have these deep natural histories, but they're also really important human histories. And in many cases, there's not a sharp distinction between the natural history and, and the human history. Part of telling the story of plants in the water cycle or humans in the water cycle, for that matter, involves understanding parts of that history. And some parts of, of these histories come into play in different ways. And so in my work over the past few years, I've become increasingly interested in the aspects of those histories that lead up to policy phenomenon like environmental justice and the rights of indigenous peoples. And so in order to uh, disentangle some of these issues in the present day, it requires looking back in time and, and trying to adopt a historian's approach to understanding some of these broader issues surrounding people and water. The focus of your study is the river that runs along the southeastern edge of North Carolina, at least on some maps. And on maps today, it appears as the Lumber River. But you call it the Lumbee River, not the Lumber River. Why is that? And how does the history of those maps matter to your decision? Yes. So the, the practical reason why I refer to the river as the Lumbee is because just over a decade ago, my tribal council adopted an ordinance that called on everyone to refer to the river as the Lumbee. Um, and the language of that ordinance explains some of the historical evidence for um, that river as an ancestral name. Um, to be honest with you, there, there is not a lot of documentation about this part of North Carolina um, in general compared to some of the other river basins in the state. 
particularly during the colonial period. And one of the things that drew me into historical analysis in the first place was sort of the, the absence of information in colonial records about this part of the state. Uh, Lumbee people, my people, um, have oral histories uh, that, that talk about our, our migrations to this part of the world and, and how we came here um, seeking refuge, seeking uh, protection, and, and really seeking to, to shelter from the, the impositions and the, the assaults of colonialism um, during the 18th century. Um, so it's no surprise that the Lumbee River doesn't show up um, on any of those maps or any river uh, that would eventually be named the Lumbee River it doesn't show up uh, at all on the, on the earliest colonial maps, whereas those maps show many of the other rivers in eastern North Carolina. Ryan, you know, you mentioned absences. And as someone who has dabbled in Native American history myself, and as someone who is deeply enmeshed in it, in your case, absences especially for North Carolina's Native peoples, but really Southeastern Native peoples in general, are a common feature of the historical record, that is, of the writing about the past, not about the past. Can you talk a little bit about those absences and what you see as your role in reminding us about the past and present and future of Native people? When I think about the absences in the written records, of the Southeast, especially as they pertain to Native peoples, I see a couple of things. First of all, I, I think about the caution that is needed and sort of uh, imagining what may lie in those absences. I know there are many historians who have talked about the, the absence of written record doesn't imply that nothing was happening. The other thing that it makes me think about is the justice aspect of this. We privilege certain peoples and certain narratives for re recording in history. And so many things are happening to my ancestors at a time when, frankly, it wasn't important to people who, who were in charge of colonial North Carolina and early state of North Carolina to record those happenings. I'm not looking to read into those absences um, more than is warranted or, or more than I should. Uh, but I do think that our people carry with us histories that can inform what those absences in these quote unquote official records uh, might look like. You know, speaking of absences, one of the key concepts of your project is indigenous knowledge. It's a central concept that you use in the project and it's an argument you've been making for why we should pay attention to forgotten or hidden or perhaps just unnoticed, unrespected perspectives on the past and also on the natural world around us. So what is indigenous knowledge and why is it so critical to the story of the Lumbee River? In general, indigenous knowledges sort of stand in contrast to the way that the the academic traditions that you and I come from construe the way that we collect and organize knowledge. Uh, you know, we have a scientific method that, that comes very much out of a Western European tradition, and we tend to consider certain things scientific and other things unscientific. Indigenous peoples all over the world have their own systems for organizing knowledge that are highly scientific. They may not fall along these archetypes of sort of the Western European hypothesis-driven uh, research, or they may. But at any rate, they're heavily rooted in observation, experimentation, 
and the passing along of knowledge from one generation to the next. And so indigenous knowledges are often place-based because these experiments and these observations happen over the course of, in some cases, centuries or millennia. Um, and there's always the, the transmission of that information and those lessons from one generation to another. And in many cases that is oral, it's through storytelling, it can be through analogy, it can also be through ceremony. These lessons are really important because they carry, they carry a scope and a time span that far surpasses things like um, sensor records and satellite records that, that we have and often consider sort of the gold standard for scientific data. Our satellite records only go back to the 1970s, yet we have cultures who are living in places all over the world who have records of observations that go back uh, much deeper in time than that. And so as an environmental scientist, um, I know that it's really important to understand trends over a longer period than, say, a few decades or even 100 years. Indigenous peoples bring that deeper understanding of the world around them and how we relate to the world into the present. That is helpful for their own survival. It's also useful for thinking about what a sustainable future looks like for all of us. Ryan, your project is ambitious. It begins thousands of years ago, and it carries us right into the present, into case studies of toxic dumping, massive animal feedlots, and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, or perhaps the ex-Atlantic Coast Pipeline. You connect that indigenous past to the environmental justice questions of our current moment in your work, and you've just explained why you don't think those are separable. But why do you think the past is necessary to those present stories? When we think about environmental justice, which is sometimes defined as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people in the environmental decision-making process, but was originally um, envisioned as a way of preventing the ongoing dumping and concentration of pollution and hazardous materials in um, marginalized communities. If we think about that definition, about how, how do we avoid the status quo of continuing to concentrate environmental harms and burdens um, among vulnerable and marginalized peoples, in order to do that, we have to look at the series of events that led up to the status quo. And that's where history becomes terribly important. And I'll give you one example related to um, pipelines, which is a topic that I've, I've worked on here in North Carolina. A rationale given for siting a pipeline along a certain path is that we didn't pay any attention to demographics or we didn't have any, any malintent towards people of color. We just needed the pipeline to arrive at a specific destination where our infrastructure was built in the 1950s. Okay, that immediately um, sets off alarm bells in my head because I think about the 1950s, the generation when my parents were growing up in the Jim Crow South, when people of color had no say whatsoever in the siting of infrastructure. So now in the 21st century, if we're going to make infrastructure decisions that are conditioned on decisions and sightings that we made in the 1950s, an era when overt discrimination was rampant. And we need to broaden our view of what, what we think about when we 
consider the larger cloud of factors that go into decision making and recognize and acknowledge that we're putting infrastructure in places today because of decisions that we made as a society in years past when we did perhaps have overtly racist ends. Ryan, most scholars hope that their work will make a difference in the world. We put our our blood and our sweat and sometimes our tears into the stuff we write and the research we do. But you are currently active in the environmental justice movement, including in actions against major polluters or potential polluters. How has your scholarly work influenced your activism? And I've got a follow-up, which is, have you ever felt a tension between those two things? I am at heart a researcher and a scholar. That's my calling. I consider research to be an, an important tool in larger decisions and larger movements and larger actions around societal change. I'm interested in bringing the very best research and the very best scholarship possible to bear on these issues. Um, sometimes that's work that I can do myself. Oftentimes it's work that I'm not capable or qualified to do. And so I spend a lot of time looking for those exemplars of research in different areas that I can bring to the table and help communicate to the communities with which I work. So in a sense, I see you know, being a researcher and being a scholar is, as being a modern day warrior in this fight to protect land and water and the rights of indigenous peoples. Um, I think being a leader and being a warrior look, look different um, in different generations and different times. You know, we take on different sets of tools as the circumstances require. I don't claim to be anything special. I just think that I happen to have a set of tools and a set of skills that happened to fit well in this time that we're in right now. You also asked me if I ever felt tension with that. And I have to say, absolutely, yes. I did not have a model for what this kind of scholarship looked like. I have many wonderful academic role models uh, who taught me how to be an excellent researcher and an excellent teacher. But there are fewer people, I think, working in this uh, space in between advocacy scholarship, public engagement, and the communication of science and research. That has created some tension simply because um, I'm a person who, who likes to see where boundaries and contours are, and those lines really aren't clear here. Ryan, this is both a professional and a personal project for you. How do you address the fact that you're a character in the story that you're telling? As a writer, I mean, how do you put yourself into the story without making yourself the story. I have found it liberating to be able to write a story from my own perspective, uh, which is very different from the type of writing that scientists typically do. If you look at most scientific articles, they're published in the passive voice. Things are happening and nobody's responsible. <laughs> but in this case, it's, it's really a joy to just be able to write in a style that is more conversational that doesn't fear placing myself in the story, but I'm an observer because I was trained as a scientist. I was trained to be an observer. And so I'm able to, to tell these stories from the position of watching these events unfold. I'm really observing things that are playing out on, on much larger stages than I participate in. 
But one thing I admire in the way that you write and also in the way that you talk about your writing and your research is your sense of humor. You've dug into some remarkable archives and stories in working on this project. So, you know, what is one of your favorite stories that you've encountered in this research, in this writing, or perhaps most shocking? You know, give me one of your goodies. Yeah, I'll, I'll share with you a story from the, the journal of John Lawson. And Lawson is a, a character from the early 18th century who is, he is venerated by the, the bards and the chroniclers of North Carolina, and rightly so. He was a, he was a very good observer, naturalist, and, and he was a good writer as well. But his journal of his trip through North Carolina in the year 1700 the newly carved out Carolina colony. Uh, it was very interesting because he has um, side commentaries that are uh, sort of interwoven in his general narrative about the things that he observed and, and the natural world around him. One of these instances that I guess shocked me, uh, at one point he, for lack of a better word, breaks into the home of his native guide who had left him for a few days decided to eat all of his food in the process of cooking this man's food in his home, uh, set his house on fire. He burned down half of the guy's roof. Uh, they spent the night there, left the next morning, uh, and he writes in his journal, it's okay, no harm done because the native people here use each other's homes all the time when they're not home. And I'm sure he'll be able to repair the roof and repair the rest of his house without much trouble. And then they go on their way. That's one of the things, I guess, that kind of stood out to me as, as both humorous and shocking. Um, and it's also indicative of some of the other encounters that he writes about during this running side commentary throughout his journal. I just want to tack on to that to say that it is so complicated for me to read Lawson because on one hand, I am so grateful that someone traveled through these territories and recorded cultures, a uh, little bit of the language, a lot of the natural world, and that we, we have that record to dig into 300 and some years later. But on the other hand, I'm conflicted because that entire record was part of a, a larger colonial project, and it was really a, a piece of PR or advertising that was taken back to London and used to gin up the next round of settlers who intended to come over and seize native lands and turn it into um, an expanded colonial project. So he's a, he's a very complicated person for me to read. I think that's the perfect example of why your project is so necessary and also a statement about what we do in history when we revise the past, when we return to well-worn stories, things we think we know, and view them with fresh eyes. That perspective, I think, enriches the story that we tell about Lawson, about early North Carolina, and also about the places that you're investigating, these watery places where people live, where they have always lived in North Carolina. So thank you, Ryan Emanuel, North Carolina State University professor and fellow at the National Humanities Center. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.